0: The following content is explicit. Wednesday, March 20th, 2018, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Trump dominates the ether. He crowds out other news. The effect is that other news happens. That is how the world works, even if Trump wishes it weren't so. But when the news hole is so dedicated to the investigation of the president, presidential initiatives such as they are, given his drug policy speech... And also West Wing staffing, when all that's getting so much coverage, then we can cover a driverless car crash or a series of bombings in Austin, but we can't really dedicate a second or third day to tariff exemptions or, and here's a good point of comparison, or a bridge collapse. We could cover it for a couple days, but it ends there. Now, In 2007, a bridge collapsed. A bridge collapsed in Minnesota. It killed 12. And I went back. It stayed in the headlines and on the front page of the papers for days and days and days, well over a week. In 2018, a bridge collapsed. Now, this is the bridge, the pedestrian bridge in Miami near Florida International University, and it killed six And there were voicemails revealing some cracks in the bridge, so you would think that that would keep the story in the news a few more days. But right now, we're five days away from the collapse, and we simply can't sustain coverage. There is no story of this bridge collapse in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journals. In 2007, there would have been. Local angles would have been explored, and there were. Infrastructure, as an issue, would have gotten talked about. But now who has the bandwidth? We hope that in the future, the professionals in charge of such things will pay enough attention to the cracks in the foundation because these days, the national news media has to spend so much time paying attention to the cracks in the foundation of our country as a whole. On the show today, a spiel, a celebration of people who are their own worst spokesmen. But first, speaking of cracks in the foundation, Harvard professor and Obama administration official Cass Sunstein has edited a book where he's asked top thinkers, can it happen here? And you know what the it is. It's encroaching Trumpism. The answers, though, are less apparent. So I've had this show that you're listening to, The Gist, for three years, almost four years, and in that three years, I've had my following guest, Cass Sunstein, on three times. What's remarkable is it's a different book every time and almost an entirely different genre. Now, Cass joins me as the editor, the man who put together a collection that asks the question, can it happen here, authoritarianism in America? Hello, Professor Sunstein. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Was this your idea and then you went casting about for it? Or did someone say, I have this idea. Who better to be the quarterback of my authoritarian team?
1: It was my idea. Uh, I thought that, you know, with the election of President Trump, a lot of people were wondering about how robust our institutions are, whether uh, things could get, you know, very problematic in our country. And so I thought, uh, let's get a bunch of people thinking hard about that.
0: Okay, how'd you cast what sorts of disciplines, what sorts of questions...
1: Well, I wanted people, really people, more than disciplines and questions. So I wanted to have people who knew about uh, constitutional law, freedom of speech, uh, equality, unjust imprisonment. So I wanted people who thought about that. I wanted people who thought about social movements, how things change rapidly or not. They could be economists or political scientists. I wanted someone who was my wife, and I have only (laughs) one, and and so she agreed. That was hard to get her to agree.
0: Luckily, uh, Samantha Power (laughs) has some credentials, (laughs) so it's not— <laughs> <Just> <laughs> no,
1: this was not nepotism. Uh, this was kind of difficult to convince her, but uh, she agreed. Uh, I wanted to get someone who I think is one of the world's great social theorists, Jan Elster. Uh, whatever he had to say on this topic would be of general interest, I thought. Yeah, and
0: in that category for me it was Tyler Cowen. Yeah. I know he's an expert on economics, but whatever Tyler Cowen has to say is going to be fun to listen he to. He always makes something
1: interesting. Yeah. So, so I wanted to do, uh, people who had different uh, mm-hmm. kind of histories, what they knew about would be different. I also wanted people who were ideologically different. So I yes. wanted some people who were on the right, some people on the left. And I wanted a lot of people I had knew, no idea where they were. And I guess I can say that with respect to maybe half of the people in the book, I have no idea who they
0: vote for. I wouldn't guess that anyone voted for Donald Trump, though.
1: I didn't ask him, and I'm glad not to know.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Among those, I mean, and there's a variety of answers, but among those who answer, it can't happen here, did anyone say because Trump's not the one to want it to happen?
1: Well, a lot of the people engage President Trump. Yeah. But when they say it can't happen here, uh, they're not asking, you know, can Donald Trump make it happen? They're answering questions like, what kind of, system do we have and is it immune from kind of an authoritarian takeover? And Tyler Cowen, who you mentioned, says yes, and he gives a pretty surprising reason whether it's good on balance or not. If you have a big government with, you know, a large uh, environmental protection agency and a big department of state yeah. to m- move these entities in a direction that really threatens liberty, you know, kind of the American Revolution was fought to stop that. He said the the size is a big safeguard. That's really counterintuitive. And I think he's just trying to engage the question, saying no fascism here. Our government's too big.
0: Yeah. And he goes and compares the the relative size of governments of uh, Germany and uh, Mussolini's Italy. He talks about history. He talks about practicalities. Another really interesting chapter, and this isn't surprising because he's a really interesting writer, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote his chapter with Karen Stenner. And that was not about The structure of government, it was about the psychology of people, how given towards embracing authoritarianism people are. And essentially, I don't know if he comes out and says this, if we have more or less a democracy and a democracy is the reflection of the people, how authoritarian can, you know, any democracy get?
1: Yeah, his is uh, in nice contrast with Tyler Cowen's, and his view is that in any democracy, you're going to breed people who aren't democrats, and that that creates serious threats. Now, hate's argument is not that you know we're about to go over a cliff, but that intolerance is very much with us, and intolerance can be activated by liberal democracies themselves. They can kind of breed authoritarian types, and so his is a uh, let's say. Um, not relaxed chapter.
0: Now, for your chapter, your answer, the question, the name of the book, Can It Happen Here? Your answer is an essential no. And you go back to our founding document and the argument between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. You point to a situation that I have often seen us seen and looked at like a flaw the huge sprawl of government and there's a lot of scholarship that our system of checks and balances though it has good points has really slowed us down and if you compare parliamentary systems to presidential systems just so many people having access to the brakes is what you know like the brakes of a train is what prevents us from enacting legislation no one really has to get off their duff and pass bills but as you phrase it and as you put it. The benefit is it does protect us from the calamitous, we hope. Completely.
1: So there's a kind of irony of history, yeah. which is Montesquieu, the great original. For the founders, the original deep thinker about separation of powers said that it formed a natural state of repose or inaction, a kind of paralysis, and Montesquieu thought that was great. Now, hmm. Hamilton, no. Well, he was a, he
0: was, he was a uh, an elite and a lord, so maybe he would he like repose and inaction. Yeah. But
1: Hamilton, no. Hamilton thought repose and inaction, you can't do that. In a commercial republic, you needed a powerful executive who can do stuff. So our constitution is a very ambivalent about where we kind of are now, which is stuck. And uh, Hamilton would be uh, rolling over or singing something in his grave that wouldn't be the happiest song. And that's because of exactly what you say. I think to connect this with um, not quite authoritarianism, but let's say a failure of democracy, President Trump, I don't believe, is an authoritarian in the sense of fascist by any means. But he is following a script I think as a kind of political strategy of uh, division and demonization we can call it, which is very uncomfortably identical to the Russian script in the 2016 campaign, which – one of division and demonization – and the Russian script in the 2016 campaign is actually the old Leninist Marxist script, called heightening the contradictions, where you oppose people to against each other. And in the Marxist script, it's really to get capitalism to collapse. In the modern Russian script, it's as you say, it's to get our society to be at so uh, such loggerheads that right. governance is impossible. It's not ideal that the president of the United States is drawn to the same script. I think, is a way of fueling the enthusiasm of those who voted for him.
0: I've often heard it said by people who consider these issues, it's not so much the laws that will protect us, it's the norms you can't write down all your laws, but there is there is a set of norms that have dictated the behavior of our democracy so far. And yet norms aren't as strong as laws and norms also are pretty subjective. Norm could mean a thing that's always been going on and just a thing that's kind of in the middle of human interaction. It's not a standard deviation away. Do you think norms are being asked to do a lot of work these days?
1: No question. and And you're right to say they can be in fundamental ways, the the safeguard rather than the law. So the idea that the FBI director is not a political tool of the president, that's a norm. That's mm-hmm. not a law. Actually, as a matter of a law, the FBI director is no less subject to the president's will than the chief of staff. That was their
0: argument. He could fire whoever he wants. And that's yeah.
1: basically under the law, yes, you can fire the FBI director. But I worked for President Obama when uh, Jim Comey was there, and if President Obama – fired Jim Comey, a Republican, because he was a Republican or because he wasn't following President Obama's, what's the right word, his political preferences, that would have been so uh, catastrophically violative of norms that it would have come as a national shock. So the delegitimization, as he's to some extent succeeded, he's achieved that, of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in circumstances in which delegitimation of those people who work for the FBI do not deserve that, not for a moment. And uh, it's not law, it's norms. And similarly, to treat the press, if President Obama or President Bush had treated the press as a purveyor of consistent lies, of course, President Bush and President Obama thought they were subject and was willing to say subject to things that weren't completely true, but to treat them as enemies of the people, that would be so severe a norm violation. Can you imagine if Obama or Bush had done that? And so we are observing that. And while that isn't producing authoritarianism, sometimes barking on the part of, uh, let's say, a living creature produces uh, fear of bites or actual bites. And that is, I think, not something to, in our current situation, not something to take lightly.
0: So I read your chapter, I heard your argument that you credit the constitution with protecting us a lot, but who will be, who will be the people that save us? Will it be, will the constitution come into play? Because the public decides on something professional and elected legislators decide to either enforce the constitution or stand athwart against the threat of authoritarianism. Is it professionals within the government doing their jobs who are going to be the savior of the democracy?
1: They're a bunch of entities. So the bureaucracy is crucial And though it's taken a lot of beating, it is true. I worked in our government, and I came in under the Obama transition, and there were bureaucrats there had been there forever. And there were some things that we wanted to do, that I wanted to do, that they were very instructive about, saying, you can't do that. Or if you want to do that, here's how you have to do that. And basically a week later, I thought, thank goodness for them, even when they said you can't do that. Because when they said you can't do that, they often meant a law or a regulation or even a long-standing practice that had a good reason behind it that I didn't fully understand. And they were, you know, at are a repository of wisdom. They're not always right. But the bureaucracy, I love the fact that you love them because I, I learned to love them too. <laughs> I mean they're, they're you know anonymous people but they're often heroes whose job it is to keep this country safe literally from threats of violence or to keep the country safe from let's say movements on the left or the right. And here I mean not social movements but movements in policy that would you know hit farmers really hard. Uh, through some food safety silliness that's not going to make the food safer, but it's going to make it hard to be a farmer. Or that would do something about drinking water in a way that would actually make us sick. And the bureaucrats know this stuff. So I think they are a line of defense. Uh, The politicians are highly responsive to what they hear, of course. And so sometimes an aroused with the people Any administration will get the attention of politicians, even in the executive branch, who aren't worrying about reelection, who are thinking if they're doing their jobs, why are they so upset? And if you think about that not as a problem to be managed but as uh, information that you have to take account of, then the safeguard is is right there. When Benjamin Franklin descended from the Philadelphia stairs after the Constitution was written, uh, he was in his 80s, and someone uh, named Mrs. Powell asked him, Mr. Franklin, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us, a monarchy or republic? Franklin's answer was, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And so ultimately, the safeguards, and I say ultimately, the safeguards come from the aroused, bipartisan commitments of our blessed country.
0: Cass Sunstein is a uh, Harvard professor, legal scholar, bestselling author, and now the editor of Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America. Thanks so much. Thanks. A pleasure. And now, the spiel. Leslie Gibson, Republican of Maine, was running unopposed for the House of Representatives, 57th District. But upon hearing and seeing the words of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Sr., Emma Gonzalez, who's a Maine organizer of this Saturday's March for Life, Mr. Gibson, adult man and presumably future elected official, tweeted this, There is nothing about this skinhead lesbian that impresses me, and there is nothing that she has to say unless you're a frothing-at-the-mouth moonbat. He deleted the tweet, but the tweet was reported, and now he has deleted his candidacy. A Democratic challenger and a Republican former member of the legislature both filed to run for the seat, and Gibson was gone. I for one miss the Leslie Gibson era. I say we need more Leslie Gibsons. Ill-informed, rage-filled bullies? No, not that. But political operatives or politicians who so nakedly and brazenly tell us exactly who they are. They are publicly stupid. They are clearly incompetent, and they can even inspire in an unsympathetic onlooker that feeling of when you feel embarrassed for another person. This all came to mind this weekend when Betsy DeVos appeared to be suffering an auto waterboarding session in an interview with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes.
2: Well, in places where there have been, where there is a lot of choice that's been introduced, um, Florida, for example, the... Studies show that when there's a large number of students that opt to go to a different school or different schools, the traditional public schools, actually, the results get better as well. Now, has that happened in Michigan? We're in Michigan. This is your home state. Michigan, yes. Well, there's lots of great options and choices for students
0: here. Have the public schools
2: in Michigan gotten better? Uh, I don't know. Overall, I, I can't say overall that they have all gotten better.
0: It's not that DeVos was bedeviled in trying to find the exact right words. She seemed more flummoxed by the concept of words in general. Facts, too. The education secretary did not do so well, even if you were grading her on the most generous of curves. Say, y equals the cosine of pi over four times x, which, since it's is an audio medium, sounds a little like this. That is how that curve sounds. And this is how DeVos sounded.
2: Well... We should be funding and investing in students, not in school school buildings, not in institutions, not in
0: systems. Now that answer, think about that answer. It was weird and it was tortured and it was rightly mocked. But I know what she's trying to argue. Let's say there are 200 kids in Kennedy Elementary School and they're not doing well. So we take 100 of them and we send them to the Childhood Achievement Coeducational Academy and they get a better education there. So that's good. Now, someone could argue, hey, well, what about the uh, ones who are left behind at Kennedy Elementary? Kennedy Elementary is still doing poorly. Well, the students at Kennedy Elementary as an aggregate may be doing poorly, but no worse than they were before. The important thing an arguer in favor of this kind of program might say is that we helped educate half the children who were once enrolled in Kennedy Elementary. And so, such an advocate might say, let us now help the ones who are still there. In fact, let's fund even more Childhood Achievement Co-Educational Academies. Now, the facts behind that, taking kids out of public school, putting them to charter school, they might all be muddied or even caca, if you will. But the phrasing, the way to phrase it, the way to argue it, as I did, has an appeal, more of an appeal than Betsy DeVos's argument, such as it was, had. And this is the insidiousness of the poor argument well stated. It won't set off alarm bells. There is a way to speak slickly about charter schools. Eva Moskowitz does it. She's a New York City educator who is an aggressive advocate for her charter schools. The New York Times reported that she uses severe discipline, including suspending out-of-school suspensions for children as young as five years old. So when that fact was put to her on WNYC radio, here's how she answered. Uh, I do think that fairly young children can sometimes engage in highly dangerous uh, behaviors, Uh, We had a child the other day who uh, brought a six inch knife to school. Um, So if you're dealing with not the ideal world, but the actual real world of what children are doing, I believe that we have an obligation to keep other children safe and also to keep our staff safe. So listen, I do not agree that suspending a five year old makes any sense. But that answer she gave, that's slick. It reframes the debate as one of the safety of other students. Don't you care about the other students? Ooh, unsafe students because of this five-year-old. And it brings in the working environment for the teachers. That's important. A competent teacher. We got to protect the teachers. Such a teacher who might be made unsafe by a kid who thinks Yo Gabba is a documentary. Anyway, it's a well-crafted thought. Of course it is. Eva Moskowitz went to top public schools. Betsy DeVos never did. Okay, maybe that's unfair. Eva Moskowitz might suspend me. Betsy DeVos might. Well, yeah, sure, I don't know me. Eva Moskowitz gives an answer that is well thought out, well phrased and well said. And that's why it's worse. It is worse to try to combat Eva Moskowitz's answer as an idea. Why are we decrying Betsy DeVos's incompetence? Her incompetence is making her the least popular member of the Trump administration. The least popular member Sorry, my voice already went up, but I got to go up more when I say of the Trump administration. That is like the most dramatic of the Real Housewives, the most self-aggrandizing member of the Wu-Tang Clan, the most legit winter storm. Is it Toby? Is it Quinn? Is it Riley? DeVos is far preferable to Moskowitz or Kellyanne Conway or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Scott Pruitt, Another cabinet secretary, that guy can verbally parry with the best climate change non-deniers. And how's that working out for you, caribou herd? None of these yakkers are good logicians, but they are skilled babblers who can at least offer a thin veneer of sense to the palaver they peddle. If there is a virtue to being able to well-state your aims, that virtue becomes a vice when the aims are unworthy. Therefore, it follows that the better thing for everyone is if those with unworthy aims are also the least skilled at communicating those aims. I don't come to bury DeVos. I come to praise her sheer incompetence, to celebrate her utter aimlessness, and to ask for more. That's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname, descending a staircase, was said to have asked Ben Franklin, Sir, have you given us a floor wax or a dessert topping? Just senior producer, Mary Wilson, having overheard this conversation, was heard to mutter, you get one question for Ben Franklin, you don't ask him if Die Hard was a Christmas movie. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He tells everyone from Yasha Monk to Isaac Chotner to me, we must hang together or surely we will hang alone. The gist, we hear what Steve's saying, but we wonder, the hang alone part, that was an idiom in Ben Franklin's time? Eh, I guess it sounds better when you're descending a staircase. Oomperoo do Peru.